you know, our practice is shaped by the people we work with. You know, if you learn good skills from one person and you pass them on to another person, then the entire group's practice improves. Uh, you know, and if you have a bad habit and somebody in your group points out, hey, you know, this really doesn't work, this resulted in somebody getting home, sent home sick, then you say, you know, you're right. Uh, I looked at other people's practice. No one else does this thing that I've been doing. Maybe I should do things differently. Welcome to the Emergency NP and PA Workforce Podcast. Here we navigate the EM labor market, the role of the EM, NP, and PA, the relationship between the clinicians and facility, and all the financial issues that come with it. I am your humble host, Omar Nava. I'm an emergency medicine physician assistant who's been in the business for 20 years. I'm also the vice president of advanced practice provider services at Ivy Clinicians, and I'm very excited to bring you this podcast. To all the emergency medicine clinicians out there, we know what you go through and we appreciate you. Today, I'm very excited to host our guest, Dr. Eric Holden, emergency medicine physician assistant. Eric has a doctorate in health sciences. He's also a distinguished fellow of the American Academy of Physician Assistants. Among other issues we'll discuss today will be the appropriate background and skills for a PA to work solo in a rural critical access hospital emergency department. Dr. Holden, thank you very much for joining us and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Omar. I'm very happy to be here. Why don't we uh, begin by you telling us a brief story of your journey, Eric, in becoming an emergency medicine PA and a leader in the field as well? Of course. So um, I attended uh, an EMT program when I was in high school that first got me interested in, in medicine. Uh, so as a senior in high school, I, I completed that course. And then during my college time at the University of California at Santa Cruz, I worked as an emergency room technician. And through that, I was able to work with PAs. At the time, this was the late 80s and early 90s. The feeling was that to become a PA, you had to be either a nurse, a paramedic, or a, a respiratory therapist. So I knew that my end goal was PA at that point. So I decided to go to paramedic school. I worked as a paramedic for five years in Los Angeles and Philadelphia. Uh, and then I got into the PA program at Hahnemann University, uh, which is now Drexel. Attended that program and graduated in 96, and I've been an emergency medicine PA ever since. So when I graduated from Santa Cruz, I got a bachelor's degree. At the time, the degree being granted from PA schools was a bachelor's degree, so I got a second bachelor's degree. Later, I attended the master's program at the University of Nebraska and got a master's in PA studies there with an emphasis in clinical emergency medicine. And then just as recently as 2015, I graduated from the Doctor in Health Science program at Nova Southeastern University with a specialization in global health. All right, I've been doing a lot of disaster medical work since 2009, and the doctorate really comes in handy for that. Taught me a lot about team building and leading teams and organizing disaster responses. I've been involved in several disaster responses at this point to Haiti, to Nepal, to Iraq, uh, and then I have over 20 separate primary care missions to Haiti to do both primary care and then kind of episodic urgent and emergent uh, medicine with things like the cholera outbreak there. I was there, I led a team in 2016 for Hurricane Matthew. Uh, so I've been fairly involved with working in Haiti. Uh, that's kind of where my passion is. So I work right now at three critical access hospitals in the Pacific Northwest. One of them is a solo position doing 24 hour shifts, the other two are uh, double coverage positions alongside physicians and we just alternate patients regardless of acuity. So it's I, I like the smaller settings. I think PAs really can shine in those settings. 
a PA at a, at a large medical center is more of kind of a cog in a machine and not known. And I really like kind of being a known quantity and knowing everybody I work with. So that's me. So very awesome and fascinating history. Before we get into the meat of today's episode, I'd like to point out that we have a, a wide array of audience, but among our target audience are other seasoned veteran physician assistants and nurse practitioners in emergency medicine, junior clinicians, and of course, the tweeners. And what I'd like to point out for our listeners is a diversity that you just heard from Eric, uh, not only as an individual, but the diversity that uh, the foundations of a PA education can allow a clinician to open all kinds of doors, have all kinds of experiences that you probably never heard of in PA school, probably never thought of in practice. So Eric's a good example of uh, some inspiration for folks to take a look at if you're a junior PA saying, what else is there out there? Maybe if you're feeling a little bit stagnated as a tweener or as a veteran to say, what else is out there? You just heard a real life story of quite a colorful history. Uh, so appreciate that. We'll move on uh, to our topic. So today we're talking about rural hospitals. So let me give our listeners just a little bit of background. There's about 2,300 rural hospitals in the country. A thousand of them are considered small rural hospitals. That's about 25% of all U.S. hospitals. The U.S. has about 1,300 critical access hospitals. A 2019 PubMed article said that rural EDs are experiencing important changes in utilization rates, increasingly larger proportion of traditionally disadvantaged groups, and greater pressure as safety net hospitals. We know that there's fewer physicians choosing emergency medicine as a career. Of over the 168,000 PAs working in the U.S., about 12% of PAs work in rural settings. Eric, what types of patients and medical conditions would you say is fairly common to see in, in rural EDs? Remember, our, our audience is wide. Some may know, but quite a bit may not know. Sure. So uh, quite a bit of kind of bread and butter emergency medicine, what you'd see at any ER, you know, sprains and strains, broken bones, uh, urinary tract infections, people with back pain, people with dental pain, uh, motor vehicle accidents, uh, people with chest pain and strokes, kind of common emergency medicine things. But then you get things that you only see in the rural environment. People who come in with injuries from axe throwing competitions, people who come in with injuries from, you know, potentially hunting things that I've never heard of before. So I, I learned there's a device called a frog trident that people use for hunting frogs. And I, and I saw a guy recently who shot one through his foot. Uh, and so he had a through and through you know, three puncture wounds through the top of his foot, out the bottom of his foot with this thing that looks like a trident. It's like, what the heck is this? You know, I had to kind of, uh, you know, figure out what this device was and what the prongs inside looked like. And, you know, how do I remove this thing that I've never heard of before? So there, there are wild things like that. And, uh, you know, people who get bitten by farm animals and things of that nature, tractor injuries, all kinds of stuff. So again, you would think an ED is an ED is an ED doesn't matter where it is in the U.S. And I think we'd all agree, obviously, there's common complaints. But uh, I think what you'll find is you go to different sectors of the U.S. and you might find very unique type of presentations like the kind Eric just talked about. Eric, what type of advanced skills would you say that PAs need in rural settings that they might not need necessarily elsewhere? So it really depends on the rural setting. Um, if you're working alongside a physician and you're seeing the lower acuity patients it's very similar to, to working at an inner city ER. If you're working in a position where you're 
Seeing high acuity patients, you need advanced airway skills, you need to be able to intubate people, perform crikes. Potentially, you need to be able to cardiovert, to run codes, you need to be able to reduce any common fracture or dislocation. You need to be able to deal with really sick patients, patients who are septic, patients who are actively having strokes, patients with head bleeds, uh, multiple sick patients at the same time. Uh, on my last shift, I had in rooms next to each other, both arriving by ambulance within five minutes of each other, a patient with advanced hepatic encephalopathy and a patient with an anticoagulated nosebleed, uh, which the paramedics were not able to stop in the field. So fairly high acuity, patients you typically would not associate with being seen by PAs in a fast-track environment. So pretty much, you know, any patient, anytime, anywhere kind of setting. At the places I work, I'm seeing the same patient mix as the physicians I work with. Eric, recently in the past six months, past year on the internet, there's been stories and then also other news carriers has, have carried stories about what physician assistant and nurse practitioner practice is like in, in rural EDs. And I've read and heard some stories that sound very colorful, but they essentially amount to anecdotes. One of them that seems to be out there in the ethernet is this notion that uh, PAs are just kind of out there working all alone without any consultation of a physician ever, that they've just replaced a physician period that's end of story. So you're a rural ED PA, so I'd like to ask you, uh, when the need arises, do you consult a supervising physician? So the setup I'm in, um, especially the solo setting, there is no supervising emergency medicine physician there. But just like any practitioner of medicine, I certainly consult people who I need to talk to in any given specialty. You know, if I have a question about a patient with, you know, chest pain, I'll call a cardiologist. If I have a patient who has uh, a difficult uh, fracture that needs to be reduced, I'll call an orthopedist. Uh, no one practices in a vacuum. Uh, and that's true for PAs, NPs, and physicians. So we all, we all consult, none of us are the Lone Ranger. So at the places where I work in double coverage settings, uh, it works both ways. I work mostly with younger physicians, uh, many of whom actually could be my child, you know, by, by age. Uh, so they have skills that I don't have, having gone through emergency medicine residency, and I have experience that they don't have because I've been doing this for 35 years. Uh, so we ask each other questions. We're team members and there's mutual respect and we, uh, we recognize each other's skills and potential deficiencies. I found something interesting that you mentioned. Uh, you said in, in your particular, one of your particular settings, uh, there isn't a physician, an emergency physician on site, but if you need consultation of a specific specialty, GI, neuro, ortho, you consult them just like anybody else would. And, and the reason I find that interesting is I work in a very uh, busy 40-bed ED, two campus combined, approaching somewhere in the vicinity of 90,000 visits a day, five uh, physician shifts, five PA slash NP shifts are very busy. And I can go through an entire shift and the only words I exchange with my supervising physician is, hey, you wanna go get some coffee? We have a great relationship. But in that shift, I will have also consulted neuro, ortho, GI, urology. So it sounds like even though we're in somewhat settings and I am in somewhat of a, of a rural place, but it sounds like we do the same thing. When we need specialty consultation, we have access to specialty consultation and we seek it. Does that sound right? Yes, definitely. Yeah, I mean, no, no one knows everything. I mean, I've worked with physicians who have multiple board certifications under the belt, you know, guys who are triple boarded, 
And uh, they still have questions because you can't know everything. Eric, in the rural setting community, how do you think PA practice is viewed overall? Uh, I think very positively, uh, especially in the communities I work with. PAs have been there for quite a long time. So they're, they're known as the local provider. You know, we know everybody in town. These are small towns. So you bump into these people in the market. You see them, you know, on the street. They wave at you and say hi. They walk up to you and ask you questions. Hey, can you take a quick look at this rash? You know, things when you're off duty. It's a comfortable situation. I really prefer that to a busy inner city kind of environment. Uh, for example, I work with a group of hospitalists at my primary job, and I have all of their home phone numbers. I have all their cell phone numbers in my phone. So if I know they're the, the hospitalist of the day, I can call them directly and you know ask them some questions, and they know me well enough to, to know that if I'm calling them at 3 a.m., it's probably about something important. They'll take my, my experience into account and... Um, you know, I know what they're comfortable with. They know what I'm comfortable with. If I'm calling them, there's a reason. If they're calling me or saying, hey, maybe this patient isn't appropriate for admitting to our facility, maybe they're too sick to be here, then I'll take that into account and try and send them somewhere else. It's funny you mentioned you work in a small community where you see people out and about and they may say, hey, could you take a look at this rash? I think I've told the story multiple times before. I earned uh, the nickname uh, from some colleagues as the Unabomber because I would go to my local YMCA and I'd have to start wearing a hood because patients would recognize me. And I'd seen them a couple days before and they kind of do the same thing and walk up to me if I'm on the treadmill and kind of lift their shirt to look at their belly and say, hey, this rash, how do you think it's looking? Is it looking better? So I just found that interesting that that is not unique uh, to me. You're going to find that more in small towns. Um, so it sounds like from your description, Eric, that there certainly isn't a backlash by your community of why are we seeing PAs? Uh, certainly doesn't sound like that's happening. Not at all. That's good. And uh, you mentioned, hey, I've got the phone numbers of the hospitalists. I can talk to them. I think from my experience traveling around the, the country that really, by and large, PAs are getting along just fine with EM docs and hospitalists. and I think everybody recognizes, hey, this is a team effort. We appreciate anybody that's on the team that helps us get a patient from signing in to either admission or to healthy disposition. Would you agree with that? I would definitely agree with that. Yeah, not, not everybody can be served by your small rural hospital. So a lot of patients will come in. If we have somebody who needs to go to the cath lab, you know, my, my seven bed ED isn't affiliated with a cath lab. So I need to send people an hour or two hours away to get to a cath lab. You know, that might involve a helicopter, that might involve a code three ambulance. But not, not every little hospital has every service. Yeah, it's got to be team medicine. Agreed. Let's take a break to tell you about our sponsor, Ivy Clinicians. Full disclosure, I am the Vice President of Advanced Practice Provider Services at Ivy. And I joined because I was frustrated with the emergency medicine job search. And I'm guessing you might be frustrated too. I also believe that EMNPs and PAs have and will continue to provide valuable contributions to the ED by expanding access to quality emergency medicine care to patients. I am very passionate that when the right EMNP and PA are matched with the right ED, then emergency physicians and EMNPs and PAs create a most powerful team best equipped to tackle the modern and future challenges of emergency medicine. So our team at Ivy created the Zillow of the Emergency Medicine Workforce, 
where you can find all 5,549 EDs, filter by your preferences, and connect with the right employers, all for free. Your data is secure, and you pick which employers can see your profile. Sign up now at ivyclinicians.io, and when you find the right job for you on Ivy, we will send you a bottle of champagne to celebrate. That's ivyclinicians.io. All right, let's get back to the show. Sometimes we see in remote areas where you can't get an emergency medicine physician, you may or may not get an experienced EM, PA, or MP. You'll see a family practice doctor helping out out there. When you see that, would you say that at baseline, all family practice doctors are much more markedly better prepared to work in that setting than an experienced rural EDPA? No, I would not definitely not say that at all. You know, just like with PAs, there's a varying quality among family medicine physicians. Some of them have worked in emergency medicine their entire careers, and for all intents and purposes, they're they're ER docs. They do all of their CME and emergency medicine. They they go out of their way to get extra training for specific procedures. You know, they're ER providers. Same thing as as PAs. There are PAs who are suited for working in the ER because they've got background and skills and They've, you know, pushed their energies towards learning emergency medicine. And then PAs who work in other specialties can't just transition directly over and have it assumed that they know what they're doing. And that's true for for any professional. I mean, you wouldn't want to drop a dermatologist into the emergency department, right? They wouldn't know how to reduce a fracture. I've used that very similar example. It's funny that you say that because I've used that very similar example for years. Eric, let's talk about the appropriate background training and skills needed to work in rural setting critical access. Traditionally, a unique feature of PA training was that uh, the experience prepared uh, students to receive further targeted training. So PA school produced a clinician and placed them on a platform such that they're now prepared to receive even further specialized targeted training if they so uh, wish to seek it. And it was usually so that it would fit the needs of a given practice. So historically, this additional targeted training might be administered by supervising physician because they wanted you to practice their way to fit his or her practice needs. Over the years, other options for additional training have developed. Some of these were academic postgraduate programs, employer-based postgraduate programs, perhaps a CME uh, track with the objective of maybe earning a CAQ and EM. Who can absolutely not go to work in your type of setting? For example, a new grad, somebody with no EM experience. Who would you say, hey, this person cannot go straight to work in this type of setting. Like you said, I think a new grad would be a perfect example of somebody who should not be working with minimal oversight in an emergency department. Somebody who hasn't dealt with high acuity patients in the past. It was interesting. One of the docs I work with told me they recently got a CV from a PA and they said, hey, do you want to take a look at this and tell me if we should hire this person? And I looked at it and they had, you know, 10 years of urgent care experience. And that's great. You know, 10 years of urgent care experience means that you can take care of probably 70% of the patients in a typical emergency department, but they probably have never run a code. They've probably never intubated or cardioverted or reduced a, you know, complex hip dislocation. And those are all things that need to be done if you're the only person there because it's it's any patient, any time. So, you know, you have to be able to deliver a baby. You have to be able to, to crank somebody with a significant neck trauma. These are not something that somebody coming out of an urgent care background could do, whether physician or PA or nurse practitioner. These are all all people who need more training and experience to get up to that level if they want to think about working in an ER. 
So, Eric, how would you recommend a prospective uh, PA get that kind of experience? Well, I think there are basically two ways you can do this. When I graduated from PA school, there were no residencies outside of the military. So attending a residency program was not an option. I think in 2023, the best way to do it as a new grad or somebody switching specialties is to attend a residency program. It's structured learning with off-service rotations. You'll spend a month with an anesthesiologist. They'll, they'll show you all the tricks and uh, you know, intubating people and using LMAs and doing all the various airway procedures. That's an experience you would not get just working on the job. So off-service rotations where it's dedicated learning and the reason you're there is, is to learn and not you know, see patients, uh, I think are the, the best possible option for getting new skills. So the other uh, pathway is the pathway that I took where you start out from kind of the basic you know, knowledge of a, of a PA, graduating from school. Uh, I had been a paramedic previously, so I had, I had some emergency medicine skills under my belt, but I knew that I was going to need more. So what I did is I started working in, in fast track level positions and did that for a couple years. So I got all of the kind of bread and butter, urgent care, emergency medicine skills under my belt. And when I felt I had maxed out my learning potential at that first facility, I moved on to another facility, which was more of a community ER setting. So I could see sicker patients with belly pain and pregnancy complications and things of that nature. Uh, and in that setting, the physicians were still seeing all of the strokes, all of the, the heart attacks, all of the significant trauma. Once I felt really comfortable with the kind of intermediate level patients, I knew I needed to take another step up. So I got a job at a trauma center, at a level one trauma center. And I worked there for a number of years, seeing fairly high acuity patients, seeing trauma patients, seeing patients with heart attacks and GI bleeds and things like that. Uh, around that time, I started looking into rural positions where I was doing double coverage. So I did double coverage for a number of years alongside a physician where I was really seeing every other patient, regardless of acuity. And if there was somebody who was super sick and outside my level of skill, I could grab a doc and say, hey, I need you to help me with this. And so I did that for a number of years. Uh, and then I started looking into solo positions because I felt comfortable with the bread and butter stuff, the intermediate level stuff, and the vast majority of the higher acuity patients. Uh, you know, I had, I had run a, a number of codes, both as a paramedic and a PA at that time, dealt with patients with, with strokes, given TPA for stroke, given TPA for people with ST elevation MIs, dealt with GI bleeds, delivered babies, done kind of full scope emergency medicine at that point. Uh, so transitioned into settings which were entirely rural, both double coverage and solo coverage. So that's kind of where I'm at now. It's kind of stepping up the ladder. And when my st I take PA students from a number of programs and they ask me, you know, if I want to get this job, what do I need to do? And I tell them the same thing. You have two options. You can do a residency program, graduate from a residency program, work for a year or two double coverage, and then apply for my job. And that's, you know, that's a pathway of two or three years. Or you can take 10 or 15 years kind of climbing the ladder between different positions. And every time you feel you've maxed out the learning potential of a, of a job, you need to, to move to the next step. That's certainly one way to do it. It can be painful. So, I mean, one of the things that I noticed is sometimes when I transitioned from places where I was seeing high volume and low acuity to higher acuity and lower volume, I was making less money. So I was enjoying my work more, but making less money doing it. So that was part of the learning curve. So for the, the junior PAs uh, listening and MPs and even some of the tweeners, you just heard the definition of a trailblazer <laughs> because Eric talked about when he was out, these residencies uh, that tend to be somewhat common now, 
So you just kind of had to do it the old-fashioned way. What I think is important to note, and this is going to lead into our next line of questioning, is that there's folks who might otherwise want to go to a residency, and they might either look at the cost and say it's cost prohibitive, or it's geographically not possible. They have their kids in a school, in their local community, and picking up and moving, even temporarily or separating from a family, just isn't an option. Until the day comes where we have residencies abound everywhere, it still sounds like somebody can do it the Eric way. But there has to be a good setup. It isn't just walking into some place and saying, I'm just going to trudge my way through it. You have to have a good relationship. You have to have a supervising physician that knows where you are and is going to develop you in a responsible way from A to Z. Would you agree with that, Eric? I would agree with that. Yeah, it's very helpful. You, a, a lot of that has to be self-directed. You need to, to seek out mentors. Uh, so, for example, when I was working in uh, community hospitals and I would have patients with orthopedic issues, we had orthopedic techs who were really good at casting and splinting. And they knew much more about splinting weird fractures than I did. So I would follow them to the cast room and just watch them do it and, and say, hey, can I do this next time? And you watch me and tell me if I'm doing it right. So you have to be an aggressive learner. You really have to get out there and say, hey, I, I don't know how to do this. I want to learn how to do this and identify somebody who can teach you how to do that skill. So I think that's quite important. Along that same pathway, something that I found very helpful was, was when the CAQ came around, I think that uh, for emergency medicine, I, I think that was kind of a good template of skills that people need. So I was in the first cohort that took that test in 2011. I was actually on the board of the Society of Emergency Medicine PAs. So I was one of the guinea pigs to take that when it had been developed. And I've since recertified it as well at the 10-year mark. For people not familiar with the CAQ, the way it's set up is there are various phases. You need to have so many years of experience, so many hours. You have to take a bunch of background CME courses. You need uh, advanced cardiac life support, pediatric advanced life support, advanced trauma life support, and a difficult airway course. Then you need to get signed off on a variety of emergency medicine procedures by an emergency medicine physician. And once you've got the hours and the courses and the sign off, you're eligible to sit for the exam which is a 150 question exam. If you pass it, then you can say that you have a certificate of added qualifications in emergency medicine. So in the rural setting, fortunately in the places I work, they consider that to be board certification in emergency medicine. So they privilege me for all the same things that they privilege an emergency medicine physician for, which is very helpful. For example, one of the places I work at has both PAs with and without the CAQ. Those with the CAQ can you know, intubate their own patients, they can do procedural sedation, they can cardiovert. Those without uh, the CAQ in emergency medicine have to call in the CRNA to do their sedations, to do their intubations, to assist with their cardioversions. So it really is a step up, I think, for PAs to kind of show their skills and, you know, demonstrate to other people that they've got a commitment to the specialty. Very interesting how the impact of the CAQ uh, the, the effects it had on, on that example you just gave us. I, I, too, was in the inaugural class and a small group, about three three of us uh, at our site, kind of banded together and said, yeah, let's do this. And uh, I think in, in that inaugural year, there was like six or seven from the state of Tennessee, and we were four of the six or the eight in one single practice. And I went to uh, the CEO of uh, our, our contract management group, and I said, you and the hospital can use this to market that six of the eight in the entire state work right here in this emergency department and is able to try to leverage that to offer a little bit more uh, incentive uh, pay for the folks that had that. Your story is interesting how it had a direct effect on credentialing. 
That's interesting. I'm glad you mentioned that for all our listeners uh, to hear. And also on pay, we have a pay differential for being uh, CAQ certified. And when you consider you went through, and I appreciate you going through the individual steps that it takes you, it's a commitment. It's a commitment of time and and, and even more studying and then more pay and sit for another exam. So it it is a commitment. So uh, I, I too, over the years, uh, sought to reward uh, folks financially that that earned it because uh, there was a lot of commitment on their end to get it. Yeah. And there are not that many people out there who have it even now. I mean, we're 10 years into it and I think there may be 500 PAs nationwide who've done it. Uh, In the first class, when you and I took it, there were about 200. I was the only one in my state for the first five or six years. Now there are two of us in my state who have it. (laughs) That's interesting. Wow. I thought we were small in Tennessee, which is having a few. Very interesting. Let's switch gears a little bit, Eric. Debate has developed uh, in the country and it continues to grow regarding NPs and PEs in the ED. ASEP's initial position over the past one or two years has been that we should present every patient to supervising physician prior to discharge, regardless of the patient complaint or final diagnosis. Now, some emergency physician leaders, not all, but some, are discussing what they believe should be minimal formal education training criteria for PAs in the ED on, on a mandatory basis. And they've cited studies of inferior care by NPs and PAs. Some of these studies bear closer scrutiny. They've cited anecdotes of bad NPPA practice and outcomes. I'm sure there are plenty of anecdotes that accurately describe less than fully satisfactory PA practice and outcomes in the ED. I'm sure that exists. However, the scope of the problem is important. Is it everywhere? Is it widespread? Is it the overwhelming minority? Scope matters. When we focus on or rely heavily on just anecdotes, there's a risk of overstating that scope and the frequency of a problem. I think we should focus on well-designed studies uh, for accurate, reliable data that describes patient outcome uh, when these cases are managed by, by PAs. In addition, I've always said uh, I, I was a former chairman of the, the licensing board for the state of Tennessee, so I often had to look at cases that were brought. I always said where there's bad PA practice, I want to know where's the supervising physician in this story. Physicians need to be involved in hiring. I believe that the best practice for hiring is for an MPRPA to be involved when an MPRPA is being hiring. Physicians need to be involved in developing sound professional developmental plans with achievable objectives for PAs. And physicians need to contribute in conducting periodic provider review and giving meaningful feedback on their performance. If a PA is not a match despite these measures, no harm done that, that happens. I wouldn't be a match for dermatology clinic, but when there's not a match, then perhaps they need to let that PA go and help them find you know, a, a better fit elsewhere. I don't believe that we need new comprehensive wide scape rules, regulations, or statutes that further govern PA practice. The governing of PA practice occurs locally. It should start with the actual practice. A physician, a hospital, a department finds out what are the needs that that our locale has. And then that becomes a starting point. It's my opinion that the last thing we need is diminishing patient access to PA with restrictions that might be onerous or overbearing. Restrictions that might be necessary in Massachusetts might not work in Mississippi. I'd like you to weigh in, Eric. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And I, I think some oversight is, is important. And I don't think that's limited just to PAs and NPs. Uh, one of the places I work has a very nice peer review system where every quarter they take all the patients who were admitted or transferred, regardless of who they were, assi- were seen by, a PA, an NP, or a physician. They randomly assign them to other members of the group. And we all look at them 
uh, they're blinded to who saw them, uh, and then we provide input. And if there was a major error, then it's shared with the group. Hey, you know, this person didn't get a second EKG, and it turned out they actually had an MI. You know, make sure you get a second EKG on all your chest pain patients. Or if they, they did something particularly good, you know, that maybe the rest of us wouldn't have done. Hey, you know, he got this consult in the first five minutes, and that got this guy right to the cath lab. You know, even before he had his first stroke back kind of thing. You know, with peer review, there you can get improvements and you can, you know, you can point out the good stuff in other people's practice and the bad stuff in other people's practice. And it can be a learning experience for everybody. So I, I think peer review for PAs, NPs, and physicians is critical and it's great, it's great for team building. You know, there's some kudos that come out. Hey, you know, he had this trauma and he did this great thing. And, uh, you know, he called the surgeon before the ambulance had even arrived. And that meant that this guy got the care he needed in 20 minutes faster. You know, maybe you should do that. If you hear something scary in the field, you know, this guy was run over by a tractor and he's short of breath, intubated and has a flail chest. Yeah, I think the surgeon should probably be here before the patient arrives. You know, things like that. You mentioned something that I think is so important, this topic of peer review. After 20 years of practice, I believe that the future of peer review for emergency medicine P's and MPs must, must include PAs and NPs in that peer review. Otherwise, how do we call it peer review when it's only a physician reviewing a cases? And my concern is this does not go on anywhere. Not only does the PA whose case is being reviewed, you know, in, in a blinded format, not only does that PA benefit from hearing uh, feedback, but also when peers are the ones doing the investigation or the review, they get the benefit from saying, hmm, this could be me. Uh, uh, it's different looking at a case when you're reviewing it versus being the author or in the first person. And maybe I should change how I do things or consider changes now that I know how it looks like from a third uh, person point of view. What do you think about that? Uh, no, I definitely agree. I mean, uh, you know, our practice is shaped by the people we work with. You know, if you learn good skills from one person and you pass them on to another person, then the entire group's practice improves. Uh, you know, and if you have a bad habit and somebody in your group points out, hey, you know, this really doesn't work, this resulted in somebody getting home, sent home sick, then you say, you know, you're right. Uh, I looked at other people's practice. No one else does this thing that I've been doing. Maybe I should do things differently. There's certainly a learning curve at any point in your career. I'm fortunate to work with a, a great variety of physicians. Um, many of them are brand new residency grads. You know, so they're 29 years old. They could be my kid, you know, by age. And, uh, you know, they have things to teach me because they were in residency last week. It's like, I just heard this lecture two weeks ago before residency was over. Here's cutting edge stuff that you, that you can put into your practice. You know, so it flows that way. And then I can say, hey, you know, I've seen 5,000 people with appendicitis. And, you know, they don't all present this way. You know, some of them present with left upper quadrant abdominal pain. But the fact that they haven't had an appetite for the last two days you know, that's meaningful. You need to consider, you know, a wide variety of different presentations for, for uh, a different condition, not just kind of the textbook thing. So I think knowledge flows both ways, uh, from experienced cl clinicians to newer people and from people with more formalized training to people with less formalized training. It's, it's all, uh, you know, it's, it's a team environment. So you just stole my thunder. I was just going to say, it sounds like we're going back to this. It's, it's a team effort, a team input to address a diversity of a patient population. We'll take all team members that we can get on the, on the team to help us tackle that. 
Eric, what do you think the EM and PPA role will look realistically like in the next five to 10 years? I think we're going to see more and more emergency physicians kind of concentrating on the, on the inner city environment as specialists, and we'll see more PAs going out into these rural settings. As, as PAs are kind of recognized as experts in the field, we'll fill in you know, some of those gaps that typically might have been filled by a family medicine physician. You know, when people ask me about, do you feel like you're in competition with, with emergency medicine physicians? I, I always tell them, no, I, I feel like our competition is family medicine physicians who do not have emergency medicine training. Because there are a lot of places that'll say, oh, we just need a doc there. So somebody who graduated from, you know, a community family medicine program at some facilities might get hired, you know, a 30-year-old guy just graduated from family medicine residency program, spent three months in emergency medicine in his entire medical career to this point, versus somebody with 30 years as an emergency medicine PA only because they're a physician. I don't think that's correct. And I think places are coming to the realization that, that experienced PAs have value. Yeah, I'm not in competition with emergency medicine physicians. They're, they're the recognized expert. Our competition is people uh, who don't have emergency medicine training who might be slipped into one of those positions. Yeah, I agree 100% with everything you said and, and, and well put. Eric, what do you see that definitely needs to change? You look around and you say, here's one or two things that definitely needs to change. So a lot of those things, fortunately, have been changing on their own uh, as time passes. So those are things like respect for PAs. When I started working as a PA, there were a number of older physicians who would not even talk to a PA on the phone. You have a relatively sick patient and you'd call up a specialist and they say, you know, I don't talk to PAs. Uh, have your supervising physician examine this patient and have them call me back. And then they'd hang up on you. That doesn't happen anymore. And I think part of the reason that that is going away is a lot of those older people are retiring, but we're also seeing more women in medicine. And maybe it's just me, but if I get, if I'm calling a facility that I haven't dealt with before, and the person who picks up the phone is a female surgeon versus a male surgeon, I always know they're going to be nicer to me right off the bat. Women can be nicer people sometimes than men can. You know, you, you present the patient and they say, you know, sounds really appropriate. I would love to see that patient. Why do you send them over here? Versus, you know, an older gruff physician, I don't want to take care of that patient. Why are you calling me at two in the morning? This can wait. Why don't you just admit him to your facility? So the way medicine has been, is being taught has changed over the last 20 years. It used to be that physicians, surgeons could throw scalpels at people in the OR. That's just not accepted anymore. You know, it's not okay to treat your nurses poorly. It's not okay to treat your techs poorly. You know, everybody is a team member. I, you know, do a lot of things with people on my team who are not physicians, who are not PAs. I hang out with the nurses, with the techs. I just went to a birthday party the other day for one of my former techs. It's important that you respect everybody who's in the building. So everybody has something to add. Everybody knows something that you don't know. And you, you'll need those people at some point. I don't take students much, hardly anymore, but when, when I used to hit a great volume, uh, one of the big things I used to try to ingrain in, in the students is go make friends with the charge nurse, make friends with every nurse and every tech, because you will lose count of how many times they will save you and tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, you want to take a second look at the CKG? Hey, you want to take a look at your order again? Did you really mean 500 milligrams of ketamine? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yes, I agree. Eric, we've talked about some of the, the technical things, specific things that uh, prospective PAs could do if, if they wanted to work their way into the rural setting. But now from an advocacy broader scope to try to advance the profession, 
what steps would you like PAs to hear and say, hey, as a group collectively, this is what we should be doing to take our profession into the next next step? So uh, that's a really good question. I, I think there are a number of things we can do. Uh, I think PAs need to be involved at all levels. You need to be involved kind of in the grassroots, uh, you know, at your individual facilities. You need to get on the boards, get involved with the different committees. I'm on the pharmacology and therapeutics committee at one of the places I work as the ER representative. So when they say, hey, we're thinking about taking this drug off of the, you know, formulary, you know, do you, you guys never really use Fomipazole at all? It's like, well, you know, we actually might need that if somebody goes and drinks a bunch of antifreeze. So please do not take that off the formulary, you know, things like that. Uh, so I think we need to be involved at the local stage. I think we need to be involved at the county stage, the state stage, uh, and the federal stage as well. You know, AAPA is very good about putting on events where you go and you talk to your congressperson. There are advocacy organizations for PAs. You know, PAs for Tomorrow goes out and advocates for advanced PA practice. And they, they've talked to organizations like Doctors Without Borders trying to get PAs, you know, credentialed with that organization. There are a number of things we can do to kind of, you know, stand out and say, hey, PAs exist. We're an option. You know, we're not trying to take over the system, but we want you to know that we exist. So I think that's a lot of the problem is, uh, you know, in the military setting, everybody knows who a PA is, right? You go to a military clinic, you're going to see a PA or an NP. So people who are former military, they know about PA practice. I've been the first PA at a number of different practices, and a big part of the battle is just letting people know what a PA is. It's like, well, I attended a, you know, a graduate level program in medicine. It's about half as long as med school. And I'm doing on-the-job training ever since then, and my interest is emergency medicine, so I take the same courses that physicians take after they graduate from residency. You know, I take extra exams. I've, you know, taken ultrasound courses. So you have to really educate your patients as well as the local people, you know, in your human resources department. There are a number of times when HR people will only look at what's the level of somebody's degree. Should we hire this guy with 20 years of experience who has a bachelor's degree or this guy who graduated last week with a master's? You know, I'd hire the guy with the bachelor's degree every single time. I think educating people that, you know, experience matters and degree is not the only measure of success is important. Eric, how would you say, I mean, you've got a lot of years. Uh, we learned at the beginning of this episode how diverse your experience has been. How would you say that leadership has changed you? That's a good question. So uh, kind of coming up as a new PA, uh, there were a lot of people that I worked with that I really respected that I've been trying to kind of model my uh, responses after, uh, mentors. Uh, like Dave Mittman is a friend of mine. I know Dave very well. Dave's been the president of the AAPA. He's been a trailblazer for our profession. And if I can do a tenth of the things that Dave did, I would consider my, my advocacy and my career a success. Um, so I think, you know, it's important that we find mentors and that we we are guided by those mentors. And, uh, you know, they say you're standing on the shoulders of giants. So, you know, any of us who accomplish something, it's not something we've done on our own. It's because we had we had good people backing us up. I mean, I see my role now as a, as a preceptor of setting up the next generation and kind of, you know, dreaming big. It's like, well, you know, what could a PA do 50 years from now, you know, that they're not doing right now? Oh, they could be, how about president of a medical board? How about uh, CEO of a hospital? You know, these are all kind of pie in the sky ideas right now, right? But, you know, the appropriate PA at some time in the future could have a position like that. You know, there have been a couple PAs who have been generals in the armed services. Um, and I, I know, you know, in the public health service has had a number of people who've, you know, gone up to the level of admiral. 
and I'd like to see that be more common. You know, how about a Surgeon General who's a PA? I think these things are all within the realm of possibility, given advancements in the profession slowly over time. I like that. Good thoughts for all of us that have been doing this for a while, for the tweeners and for the junior clinicians. Eric, as we draw to a close here, a few final questions we'd like to ask all our guests. What book or movie would you recommend to our audience? It doesn't have to have anything to do with medicine, or it can. So I really like the movie Bringing Out the Dead with Nicolas Cage. It's a movie about a paramedic <laughs> who's been stretched beyond his limits uh, in inner city New York in the 80s. And it's, it's based on a book written by a guy named Joe Connolly, who I actually had the pleasure of working with uh, in a mission in Haiti. Very nice guy, and it's a very truthful story. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Most of the anecdotes in the, in the book really happened. Martin Scorsese purchased the rights to the book from him to make the film. Yeah, Nicolas Cage actually came out to New York City and did ride-alongs with Joe Connolly for a while to learn what being a paramedic was like. And when he, when he shot the film, he did things like, well, I'm not going to sleep for 24 hours before we shoot this next scene, so I look tired. You know, because that's what being a paramedic is like. That's what being in medicine is like. When I was in PA school, they told us we should all read uh, The House of God. You know, I don't know if you've ever read that book. And there, you know, there are the rules of The House of God. And it's, it's kind of a, they made it into a movie. Danny DeVito played one of the major characters. Uh, parts of that book are very true. Parts are very dated. But it's, uh, you know, people are always talking about kind of the rules of The House of God. You know, they can always hurt you more. You know, make sure you all, the first pulse to check in a cardiac arrest is your own. You know, things like that. Yeah, I would say read The House of God and go see Bringing Out the Dead. I love your movie pick because I, I thought I was the only kind of nerd that even knew about that movie existed. But I didn't know the, how involved Nick Cage was trying to do the method acting portion. It's cool that you that you knew the, the guy. That's, I'm going to tell my wife about that. I think she got tired of me playing that over and over again. Eric, is there a hero of the department uh, that you'd like to recognize? They could be anybody in any role. Uh, I was thinking about this, actually. During COVID, there were a, a number of people who left their departments to go kind of run and seek, you know, the big money. I'm going to go to New York City and make $300 an hour seeing COVID patients. The people who were the real heroes to me during COVID are the people who didn't leave their jobs. You know, the nurses, the techs, the providers who said, you know, my community still needs me. I'm not going to leave. I know I'm not going to make a huge amount of money. I'm going to make as much money as I made every other day, but I'm going to stay here and see patients because my community needs me. Those are the people I really respect. You know, props to the people who went out and, and helped in other communities, but the people who stayed at home, they're my heroes, you know, because we needed them. If, if every nurse had left and gone to New York City for $300 an hour, you know, all of these little hospitals would have closed and it would have really impacted people in rural environments. So the people who just did their day-to-day -day job and just showed up every day, you know, the housekeepers who worked 24-hour shifts alongside us because we had to clean every single room for every single patient, those folks are my heroes. That's a great acknowledgement. I think folks listening to this podcast can absolutely identify with the scenario that you just described. Eric, if folks wanted to reach out to you and communicate with you, um, how could they do so? Sure, of course. So you have my email. Uh, you can uh, attach that to the, uh, the podcast notes. And if people want to reach out to talk to me, I'd be happy to, to talk to people by phone or if they want to send me an email, that's fine. Yeah, I'm, I'm open to questions about emergency medicine, about global health, about disaster medicine. Uh, I teach a disaster medicine course uh, right now for the University of Lynchburg's uh, DMSC program. 
So if people are interested in pursuing, you know, doctoral studies, I can talk to them about the different options for different programs out there. Consider me a resource. I'm out there. So be, feel free to use my, uh, my email and spread it wide. That's great. Uh, I think that there's lots of folks that can learn from your experience and take something uh, away, not just, again, the junior clinicians, but uh, senior clinicians who might be looking for a different direction. Again, some of the tweeners who haven't decided, hey, where is it that I want my profession to end up? Uh, you've given them quite a bit of, of options for them to consider. Folks, we've been listening to Dr. Eric Holden, emergency medicine physician assistant. Eric, I want to thank you very much uh, for joining us uh, today. You've shared some really important information, not just for PAs and NPs, but also for physicians who may not have been completely clear on what PAs or rural PAs can do, and also employers that didn't necessarily know the capability. Thank you for joining us, Eric. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity, Omar. I'd also like to thank our podcast producers, a great team at EarFluence. And finally, a big thanks to you, the clinician. As I said before, I know the sacrifices that you make. I know some of the challenges that you face. More importantly, I know the value that you bring to this market. Thank you, everybody, for listening to the Emergency NP and PA Workforce Podcast. I am your humble host, Omar Nava. We'll catch you at the next episode. And don't forget to subscribe now to this podcast and your favorite podcast network.